Welcome to another episode of the Existential Hope podcast. Today we're taking a closer look at the perspectives and insights of Dr. Emilia Jaworski. She is a physician scientist and actively works to contribute to key discussions at the Future of Life Institute, especially in the areas of AI, biotech, nuclear risks and climate change. And in this episode, we'll explore Emilia's journey from her roots in biomedical research to her current pivotal role as the director of the Futures program. Our discussions will navigate the balance between understanding the technological challenges and risks that come with new technologies, while also remember to highlight the potential of these technologies. So we'll discuss topics such as AI's role in chemical weapons and its implications in conventional arms, as well as looking at concepts like world building and the potential of AI's future alongside humanity, a positive future. And if you're keen to understand more about the intersections of technology, ethics, and the potential pathways we might tread, join us for this conversation. And so let's begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Foresight's Existential Hope podcast. I'm so delighted to have Emilia Jaworski here today. Emilia is a physician scientist and really, I think, the director of multi-stakeholder engagements at the, at the Future of Life Institute. Even though, as we, I think, may be hearing, I think there's a few really interesting projects that you may be, I think, focusing on a little bit more. So I'm really, really excited about discussing those. I think you also have a really interesting background because you really worked on a few like pretty technical projects, including the, 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 the development of energy-based medical devices, you co-found a skin health company, and you also direct, which I didn't know before researching before this podcast, <laughs> the nonprofit scientists against inhumane weapons, which I think also has so many interesting implications. Perhaps as we can discuss for your work, FLI, because FLI has a wonderful focus as well on nukes, and maybe also can, you know, can produce some kind of precedence on how we deal with other technologies that may be coming along. And you authored over like a dozen peer-reviewed publications and multiple patent applications and so forth. So I think this is really interesting because you have this like unique technical background and nevertheless care very, very much about the long-term future and like also about a really near-term like risk events that are along the way. And so I think that, you know, as we will be discussing like many of these kind of like technologies that I think many people are excited about and also have some pretty kind of like near-term implications, both positive and negative. And so I think that would be an exciting topic to discuss. Yeah, you are currently at Future of Life Institute and Future of Life Institute is an absolutely wonderful organization and we've really enjoyed collaborating with you guys in the past. And you really have this kind of like mission to steer transformative technology towards benefiting life and away from extreme large-scale risk. And I think you really have this focus on AI, biotech, nuclear risk, climate change, and I think many people probably here and afterwards will know you from the cinema conferences, the Unsung Hero Awards, where you really like reward kind of recognize humans that have made a big difference to the flourishing of the world, but maybe weren't recognized enough. You had the AI world building contest, which we already had Anna and Anthony discuss at a, a previous podcast. And then I was a judge at, and uh, you recently published this very interesting open letter. So anyway, I'm just so excited to have you on. There's so much we could discuss, but maybe in your own words, given that you've had such an interesting trajectory into FLI, I would love to hear perhaps a little bit more about, yeah, what kind of got you interested and hooked with FLI and like, what's, yeah, what was your trajectory into this and kind of like, yeah, into this kind of like beneficial technology development space? Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Allison. It's really an honor to be here today. And we're such fans of Foresight and all the work you do, both in a professional capacity, but also in a personal capacity, because I think it speaks a lot to the question you just asked me of 
this idea of like, how did I get involved, given my background as a physician and scientist working in biomedical research in this field of safe and beneficial development of technology? And similar to Foresight's mission, it's about changing the world through technology safely and doing it in a way that takes us forward into a world we want to live in and minimizing any downside as we engineer more power into our different technological fields, whether that be biology and the dawn of synthetic biology and what that unlocks for the future. That unlocks really amazing things and also some scary things we need to be very mindful of. So in my the course of my own career, I've always been very sensitized, I think, to thinking about technology through the lens of safe development because I come from a biomedical background. And so that's a little bit different, I think, than perhaps others because I've been operating in a very highly regulated field that is regulated for very, very good reason, both ethical and safety reasons of when we develop technology, we need to make sure we're developing technology that delivers more more benefit than risk. And that mindset has just been deeply ingrained in me. My first job was in bioethics. And so I've always been of that mindset of like safe development of tech. And it was just alarming to me how rapidly we are engineering power into these different different disciplines, whether it be AI or whether we think about a new nuclear arms race or synthetic biology or the intersection of how AI is enabling so many different fields to just accelerate forward, that we may be engineering power a little bit faster than wisdom. And that sort of was a thing that kept me up at night in in really not feeling like we're really doing our homework on the risk mitigation side. And that's what led me to FLI. And so I I first sort of contact with FLI now is about five years ago. And so I've been working with them ever since on a wide variety of projects. So while I started as like a biologist in a position by training, I've worked on projects everywhere from autonomous weapons to nuclear work to AI safety work, and and now actually focusing a lot more also on the positive futures work that we do as well. Well, awesome. It's so similar, I guess, I guess to some extent to how I ended up with Foresight. I, I don't know if it was you reaching out, for example, but I literally just cold emailed Foresight because I could not not do it. I mean, just talking about nine, I was like, wow, this is exactly what I think the world needs needs more of and, and reached out. And I think it's just interesting to see often that this taking your own initiative often really works for nonprofits. You know, I know that now if someone reaches out to us, we're like, oh, okay, this person like really cares. And yeah, I'm just like curious if you could perhaps just from an individual lens, perhaps say maybe what how how perhaps someone that is trying to enter a field like this you know can imagine like a day in a life you know of your work or just kind of like giving a bit of a bird's eye overview of you know what yeah what your kind of like modus operandi at, at FLI is yeah so I, I think in terms of thinking about day in a life my Technical training in the sciences and research is certainly helpful, but also what was really helpful was previously being an entrepreneur, because when you have that hat on, you realize you actually don't have a job description anymore. The job is whatever is needed at the moment, (laughs) and that is highly dynamic and changes sort of day to day. And so that those sort of are the two sides of like my training that I think have been actually very helpful for this job, because this technology is moving so quickly. Overton windows are shifting so much. The landscape of risk is shifting so much. And also the positive possibilities of the technology are like coming online at such a, a fast rate. 
And I think that's also a really important thing to note too, because as positive sort of upside comes on online, you have to make really good decisions early on to set that technology up for success moving forward. And so you have all of these opportunities for action coming at you at once <laughs> in terms of, all right, you have to mitigate the risks. You have to cultivate the benefits. You have to make sure the benefits that you're cultivating are set up in a way that they're positioned for long-term success and not to generate more risk. You have to think about that on the entrepreneurial front. You have to think about that on a policy front. You have to think about that on a societal and sociocultural narrative front. And so I think for someone wanting to get into this line of work, I think a common thing people can feel is, oh, I'm not a technical, I'm not an AI researcher by training. I'm not a you know, nuclear physicist by training. I'm not a public policy person by training. And therefore there's no like room for me. And I think what we're seeing is like, there is so much room and we need so much more talent engaging and working on these issues because the needs are just so great and also so consequential for like where we head as a species that like really in any background that you come from, there is a way that you can positively contribute to moving the, the sort of collective field forward. So I, like you alluded to, Allison, it's about taking the initiative and like what if you're really excited about the issues, then think about the skills you have and how they could be applied. And then, you know, talk to people, go find people and like you will find a home someplace because the needs are just so great right now. Yeah, I remember, I think the first time when I got interested in this stuff and I was still relatively young, I was in Germany and I was like, oh, probably people in the US will have figured it out. You know, what could I possibly do? You know, grew up in a tiny suburb in Hamburg. And and then, you know, I think as I arrived in the Bay Area, I was like, oh, people don't have it figured out. Uh, you know, like they're like, you always think, I think this external perspective is often like this is really big community, you know, with probably not very much I can contribute to. And then when you go in, you just say, like, Things can hurdle at you faster than you can really pick them up, and and so there as yeah, and, and, and I, I think because these areas have recently gotten like more media attention, one could get the wrong perception that there's actually that these fields are solved or that there's like enough people on the ball, and really I think there aren't. So it's like interesting this also perspective on it, and yeah, I'd be really curious to see. I, I'm not quite sure exactly how many years you've now been with FLI, but just in general, kind of have you seen any exciting kind of like cultural shifts since the time that you were there? Because it's definitely been like accelerating a little bit recently. But yeah, I'm just curious to kind of like get your read of the kind of like techno technological landscapes that, you know, you're focused on and like how those have kind of like changed in the past years. Yeah, no, that point you just made totally resonates with me about, oh, somebody has this figured out. Certainly there are adults in the room someplace that have thought this through and figured this all out ahead of time. And then you get into it and you're like, nope, there's still so much work that needs to be done to figure out where we're going. Yeah, it has been crazy to see the evolution of this space over the past five or so years. You know, I remember the early days of thinking about X-risk mitigation, which was just like a couple of students someplace with some orange juice and bagels someone managed to scrounge together <laughs> sitting and thinking about these issues. So we've come a really long way since then. You know, it's the 
the idea of mainstreaming the concept of AI safety, right? That was something that was not even on the radar, I would say, uh, five years ago, that in thinking through engagement with policymakers and talking about these issues in the public, they would still very much stigmatized in mainstream circles and policy circles to discuss any potential of downside risk with AI, never mind catastrophic risks and X risks. And you'd have to just be so careful in your language of just saying like, how thinking through how you spoke about it to not be completely dismissed as like a crazy person. So to see how far we've swung in terms of like people listening and hearing and learning and being open to, you know, this, this concept and looking at recent public polling that's been done on AI catastrophic and X-risk and seeing that like 60, 70% of the U.S. population pretty evenly split upon long partisan lines. So not really a partisan issue. I believe that AI X-risk is a thing that it's was, we saw a Senate hearing where people were alluding to downside risk of AI and catastrophic risks of AI and saw that in, in the remarks of Gary and to some extent Sam as well. And so seeing all of that happen has been incredible. We've also done a lot of work on autonomous weapons, which has been another field that has unfortunately moved forward. Like we did Slaughterbots back in just our storytelling. We love storytelling at FLI as a way to illustrate the concepts that we're talking about that may seem very abstract. And, you know, where we are now in the governance conversation with the ICRC coming out and having a formal position on autonomy and weapon systems and putting like a formal policy proposal on the table, seeing the EU AI Act and what's happened on, on that front. Yeah, it's been really encouraging and like heartening to see while the it is possible. And like, I very much feel totally overwhelmed sometimes by the amount of work we still need to do in an escalating risk landscape. It's also nice to reflect on how far we've come as a field from the early days that we're, since where we've started. And like, we have all collectively and all the different organizations and voices, like FLI is one, but there are so many others have made like a lot of progress on, on these issues. There's just still a lot more to go. Yeah, I think it's it's just interesting to think back about. I think I did my thesis on AI safety 10 years ago and I had to fight. I was in the philosophy department. I had to fight to do it on AI safety because even in the philosophy department, mind you, you know, like we did, I don't know how many trolley dilemmas, but even there, they're like, this is too abstract. This is just not a thing that is like <laughs> going to occur and not something we, you know, like it's it's just, I don't know. It seemed, it seemed out there for them. So it's just, I don't know. It's been like an interesting development, I think, to see, you know, like the types of things that were developed can at least discuss internally amongst organizations on forums like Last Forum and Effective Altruism, whatever you may have, just like gradually seek into the public attention a little bit more. And I think in like relatively pr pragmatic ways, you know, and so it's just been in interesting to see some of that kind of come to realization. It's also interesting to see that like probably the kind of like intersection and interplay of technologies will also become like relatively interesting you know like i think your work on ai and autonomous weapons eventually is probably gonna kind of also eventually collide a lot more as you know autonomous weapons get more autonomous <laughs> and so i think that you know if there's one thing that we'll see is that also technologies are like impacting each other also a lot and so have you seen any of that for example the with ai and bio risk so far i know that you guys for example had an incredible podcast on bio risks and, and new machine learning models that we used to kind of yeah just like 
really engineer like relatively novel or or we I think rediscover and then engineer, I think, potentially novel, um, you know, like relatively lethal uh, viruses. And so I think, yeah, have you seen any kind of like interesting convergences across the different technology areas that you're focusing on that uh, you think were just like uh, unusual? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is where the next sort of frontier is in terms of thinking through risk mitigation is up until now, we've thought about these categories of risks pretty much in isolation. We've thought about bio-risk and AI risk and nuclear risk and to some extent climate change and geoengineering. But realizing that AI progress is going to be the substrate and juxtaposed onto each of these pieces is, uh, you know, where I think a lot of the thinking needs to be directed to. And there's a tremendous unmet need for. So thinking about the convergence of AI and bio-risk or AI and chemical weapons or AI and nuclear command and control. And what does that mean for strategic stability? And what does it mean if we're going to integrate in our conventional sort of arms up and down the sort of chain of command and control our systems on AI, right? What does that mean for escalation risk of conflict? So those are the areas that I think we're going to need to see a lot more work done on. And I think that is it is especially true with the increasing power of large language models, but it's also true even with like fairly rudimentary AI systems. And so there's this, I highly recommend everyone if they have it, read this, the paper that computation, computational toxicologist by the name of Sean Akins wrote, where he basically was doing work to with The Hague on verification and thinking through the sort of new age of chemical weapons and how do we start to ensure uh, compliance with those treaties and was tasked with this idea of could you use AI to generate sort of novel classes of, of chemical weapons? And he basically just changed the valence of the LD50. So instead of trying to make it safe, trying to make it toxic, gave it an input of a very common nerve agent, BX. And this was happening on a laptop computer and came back the next day and was like, oh, that's not good. Um, so as, as we think through this like next frontier of risk, it, I think one of the most important things is not just to think about them in isolation, but also think about the overlap between categories of risk where like new areas are going to, to pop up. Those are going to, and like everything, they're tools. They're going to be new areas of opportunity as well as new areas of risk. So it's, it's also important to keep the lens on, on both. Yeah. Maybe let's like head over to the more XLB part. Yeah discussion. And I think that, yeah, it can be relatively concerning. And I think, you know, rightfully, because there is just so much coming online right now that it feels a little bit overwhelming. But at the same time, I think it's sometimes easy to just like forget, yeah, forget to see the forest for the trees. I think there's also so much upset and so much opportunity and like on the kind of like in, in a, on a historical perspective, you know, on the large scale, we have often really just moved forward, you know, even though there were lots of setbacks and um, along the way. And so I think I would be really interested to hear a little bit more about like you know, what your kind of like positive outlook is. And if I know, I know that you can like have been a little bit more interested in the flourishing future space. You've had like the AI world building contest, obviously, and that was just a phenomenal effort in that, in that area. But I think in general, just like, how are you guys thinking about the more positive aspects of these technologies? Yeah. So I, I would say I would address this in sort of two, two, perhaps two points. The first I would say is the idea of 
the work that we do on policy and regulation is as much risk mitigation as it is trying to realize upside. And so the analogy I use is like comparing the trajectories of biology versus nuclear technology. So if we look at the trajectory of biology, we did a pretty good job in the early days of the technology of drawing some lines like the USSR and US, we did the Biological Weapons Convention, we decided that like collectively, let's do a norm around human germline engineering until we understand this a little bit better. We put some regulations in place to, you know, burden of proof for safety and efficacy. And this has really enabled like biology to flourish. Like we think of how many new medications have come online. We think of the bioeconomy, synthetic biology, just like being applied across every aspect of our economy of how we think to making fragrances to agriculture to new sources of energy, right? And like, it's done pretty well. Whereas you look at nuclear and like the mistakes that were made early, both in terms of the weaponization and then also the safety concerns about from like essentially shoddy safety engineering, when you look at like the Chernobyl disasters and what have you, generated a stigma that was so strong against the technology that we never collectively realized the peaceful uses of nuclear energy. And also given that we, those early like traumatic experiences with the technology, we had to over-regulate to be able to try and have any sort of trust in the technology moving forward. And like, we see what a problem climate change is today. And like, from a first principle standpoint, we have a technology that could, is high output and could help us get to a carbon neutral future, right? Like we have that today. We're trying to develop a whole bunch more different types of technology, but we already have one. We just haven't realized the potential of it because the mistakes that were made. And so from our perspective, regulation is key for new categories of technology coming online, like AI, that we want to see that future look a lot more like bio than nuclear energy, where there's a terrible disaster, the the positive potential is curtailed, and we never actually realize all of those benefits. So I would say like there's this false dichotomy that like regulation is against progress. I think like regulation is the way you safely enable progress and actually is the thing that's better for the technology to realize its positive potential in, in the long run. So I would say like our regulation work is somewhat also relevant to positive futures. I think the other piece of it is envisioning positive futures and figuring out like, where do we actually want to go with these technologies collectively as a society? How could these new categories of technology change our lives, change our economies, change the way we live for the better? How could they enable the design of new and improved institutions? There's a lot of different ways you can think about levers to pull in these technologies that aren't just like technical breakthrough and to enable something physical to come into the world. These are technologies of information that could enable us to like fundamentally restructure and improve the way we design and execute our societies, our governments, and even like ourselves and our social connections, right? What does the future of empathy look like with strong AI, right? I think there's really interesting things to, to play with there. And I feel like that conversation is one that isn't as broad and inclusive as it, it could be and should be. I feel like there's a often a somewhat myopic sort of single techno-utopian view of the future that we hear a lot of that also lines up very nicely with what markets would like to hear in the short-term cycles that they care about with quarterly 
reporting vision of what technology looks like and how it makes our lives better. But in terms of really envisioning collectively, free from those sort of market constraints, what what would you want this technology to do? We, We don't have enough of that. And I think that's really important because articulating those visions of where we want to go is how we reverse engineer of what we should actually be doing today. Um, And what are like the decisions we should be making today? What are the types of companies and research and policies that we should be undertaking to start to lay the foundation to get us to those more positive futures? I also think there's a crisis of hope around technology. Like when you talk to people, they're like super depressed. They're like, yeah, we're doing like all this great technology and stuff, but it's just going to be really bad. It's inevitable that it's going to be bad. It's everything's going to, you know, falling apart and chaos. And we hear all about this risk and those things are inevitable. And that's the future we're resigned to. And so I think imagining the positive futures also serves as a really important tool to say, no, this is not an inevitable march towards a bad outcome. Like all of those positive outcomes with technology are still very much on the table. And it's what we do today that takes us there. And having a positive vision articulated provides the why. The why do we fight? Why do we make the like, why do we make the changes today, both on the risk mitigation front, but like why get in the game to actually try and use technology to create like amazing things. You need that sort of goalpost of like, where do we want to go with it to give you sort of that that hope and excitement about building that actual future vision that you'd want to live in. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I think we do, or yeah, we have kind of like a little bit over close corrected, I think to, you know, like really focus on risks to an extent that I think we may want to at least bring an alternative position again back to the table. I think Christine Peterson from Posset said it pretty nicely the other day. She was quoting someone else who basically pointed out that you're not supposed to park your car on the sideline, basically uh, on the highway, because people end up steering where they're looking. And so it's a little bit similar for technology development. If we're really only looking towards the kind of like features that we collectively like want to avoid, you know, it may become a little bit more like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think because it, it's also kind of like a, it ends up being self-fulfilling and you have this kind of reflexive kind of almost loop by which if more people talk about it, more people will see that, will talk about it. And so it, it it does become a little bit like almost of a relatively like negative filter bubble at some extent. And so I think like maybe injecting a few kind of items of hope here and there could maybe at least provide a bit of an alternative view because it does seem like it's undervalued at, at this point. So yeah, I would just love to know from you maybe more concretely, you know, what are you excited about, you know, like in, let's say the, yeah, not even the long-term future, but like, you know, just like in, in general, you know, what's coming kind of like down the, yeah, down the potential te- technological development pipeline that you're excited about and, you know, how can we like bridge that gap between developing technology while also accounting for the risks along the way. Yeah. So I, I think one thing that I sort of framing change that I've had over the past really year or 18 months is before we used to use a lot of language of like short and long term, like what's happening in the short term versus what's happening in the long term. And when you look at the rate of tech progress, especially in AI, like those distinctions have just collapsed in my mind of what's happening in the short term versus the long term, because they all feel like the present at this point or the present slash very 
near term. And so that's been something that's both exciting and scary is realizing how how quickly this is all moving and and what's coming online. In terms of on a just like a very personal note, what I'm excited about with technology and like in terms of upside is I think it could be amazing what's happening in AI for our understanding of biology. Biology is a field that like I was trained in that still lacks first principles. Like we just don't understand so much of how biological systems work. We don't understand like how to intervene in them in a way that has like any sort of predictive value before we actually scale up and develop things. So I'm really excited for what can happen. I think we started to see that with the DeepMind and AlphaFold and the solving of the protein folding problem, which is like a problem that had been unsolved by human minds for a very long time and was managed to be solved by by AI. Uh, Unlocking like a fundamental thing of like, how do the building blocks of life structured in three-dimensional space. Like we still couldn't answer that question as a field until sort of AI came along. And so things like that just get me so excited for that combination of fundamental insights and being able to like piece together the basic building blocks of biology, plus how much synthetic biology has evolved in the experimental methods we have to build things. To me, there's like a whole world of possibility there. There's also, as we said, a whole world of possibility of risk in that space as well. But I think the the upside there could be really exciting to me. And I, I would also say, I think the future of human connection and empathy could also be a really interesting ride to be on in the sense that a lot of the narratives I think we have around AI is that it's going to continue to isolate us. It's going to continue to have these like detrimental sort of mental health effects that social media has had and that we've seen happening in our society. I think it's important to remember that the reason it's had those effects is because the systems were designed in a very specific way that that led to that outcome. These are tools that are just as easily could be designed to build bridges, to encourage changes in thinking, to open up people's minds, to cultivate curiosity, to cultivate play. And I, I think that could be like a really exciting space to see how that evolves as we have these more personal interactions with AIs. Yeah, love it. I think to that last point, you know, if people want a little bit more food for thought, I think the AI world building contest that you guys did, it was really wonderful to see just how many intricately designed AI worlds came out of that, that really had this focus on human connection through AI and also just an expanded kind of like sense of empathy through AI. And I really, really recommend people check out the, the winners and just like pretty much any project that that applied. I think for me, what was interesting, it wasn't just like one individual story that was great, but collect, like reading literally through every single of these proposals changed my general outlook uh, a little bit because I do believe that you can't really build what you can't imagine. And many of these stories had very kind of like like little nuances and, and different nuances on the future and 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 on you know what's coming down the pipeline now that were very positive had a real clear human element in it that were very creatively thought and had the interwoven technologies in it and it was really interesting to 
um, to just get inspired by like a, a whole variety of like new narratives basically about where we could be going. And it's still so lacking. Like I'm hoping that yeah. you do another one, like a rewind or something. Is anything like that planned or yeah, what's happening? With it? Yeah. Do? Yeah. So we definitely want to do more of this style of work, which is like engaging sort of broad-based voices on what futures we want to live in and with AI and AI that we develop safely and responsibly or with other categories of, of emerging technology. And I think what was something that was really exciting about the world building competition that we would love to, to build on and continue more of is this idea of just getting a broad base of voices and ideas and minds on these problems, like in thinking about like ages, like we had a youth section and it was really cool to see what like how young people were thinking about designing, you know, positive futures with AI. Then there was like a global element where we got submissions from all over from, you know, Kenya to New Zealand to Europe to, you know, where, where have you. And very different perspectives there in terms of what do, how do we craft our futures? And I think this is really key and in, in needed in this debate. As, as you say, Allison, it's not only more positive envisioning with AI and learning from that and appreciating the subtleties and different ways people imagine the future and what that could mean for, as I said before, like what are the policies, technologies, research programs and things we could be doing today? but also to show the diversity of those visions and perspectives that are not often represented in the what has been traditionally a pretty narrow techno-utopian narrative. And I, I think just opening that up from a generational perspective, from a global perspective, and, and hearing you know, from people from all different backgrounds and aspects of society around the world what future do you want? What future should we be building? I think is a, a really powerful and exciting thing. And actually next year at the UN, the S with the secretary general, there will be, he has a sort of initiative about thinking towards the future of what do the sustainable development goals look like with technology beyond 2030? What is our collective vision as a society for moving forward beyond that sort of 2030 horizon that we specified with the original SDGs? And they're going to have a summit for the future. And so there's so many different verticals now that are preparing for that envisioning exercise next year. So these kinds of ideas are both things we're thinking about on an organizational level, but they're also being thought about at the global scale of we need to think about where we want to go with technology and the role it can play and through taking our, our sort of global community of humanity forward in, in a way that's exciting and aspirational and achieves all the values that we've all broadly agreed to in, in international fora like the UN. Well, I had no idea that the UN is so forward looking. It's going to be a ton of fun. Congrats to whoever made that happen at the UN. <laughs> so if you think a little bit, I think one interesting kind of lens that you guys also have on the positive future development is really this kind of learning from other technologies to potentially provide some precedents for how to deal with new techn technological developments, and especially as AI is like arriving relatively fast. Let's put it this way. Can you think of any like other examples that, you know, you guys have come across with in terms of other technologies of that could give us a potential hunch for how to address AI in particular? Yeah, I think there's lots of examples of success in, you look at nuclear technology or bio for this, like 
we've done prohibitions before, right? We have a chemical weapons convention, a biological weapons convention, a biological convention, weapons convention that even though it does not have a verification regime has generated a pretty powerful stigma that's held largely over many decades. So this idea that agreements that are not verifiable can also be stabilizing. That was also logic that was put out in the national AI sort of advisory body report that came out a couple of years ago talking about human in the loop for nuclear weapons. That yes, that's something we should all agree on, even if we can't verify it. The act of us all agreeing upon it is something that would be inherently stabilizing. You look at other sort of international bodies like the IAEA or the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, right, which is specifically in the NPT talks about two things, which is like, how do we mitigate risks and how do we cultivate benefits, right? That's the 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 essence of that document and those articles are about risk mitigation and limiting proliferation and limiting worst case applications of nuclear technology while also ensuring peaceful development and enabling peaceful development of, of tech. So this idea that like we can't regulate technology or there's not examples of in the past of when we've been able to like put in agreements and put in agreements in very difficult times from a multilateral perspective. We think about the Bioweapons Convention that was happening during the Cold War, right? And so I, I think that this idea that a, there's no examples of regulating technology is, is false. And then B, the fact that, well, there's arms race dynamics and it's very difficult and you can't do that when there's this sort of uncertain or adversarial geopolitical context is also based on history, not entirely true. And there's plenty of examples where we've executed that well. So that's what leaves me hopeful is we've actually done this before. Yes, it's a this is a new category of tech, but there's a lot of intuitive parallels here that could be applied. And that makes me hopeful and, and excited about it. And even starting to hear policymakers using some of this language and thinking of, oh, we need an international agreement on this. Even just this week that out of the UN, the SG's body, there's been a multilateral process happening there for a while, thinking about global governance of AI and this new global digital compact. And one of the things there they call for is a multi-stakeholder body for AI, right? So it, it, whether you look like at the national level or different international fora, there's like plenty of options for us to take action here. And like we've done it in the past and we can do it again. This is like a very actionable, tractable space that gives me gives me hope. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's been really interesting also in on my earlier questions on positive futures that you actually mentioned the kind of policy and regulation work as like an enabler of positive futures. And, you know, I think to some extent, if people are on the same page and kind of like roughly agree on the playing field and it can also enable people to like just make progress a little bit faster rather than trying to can be in this middle ground where they're not really quite sure if what they're currently doing will for, will in the future be regulated away. I think there's clarity and like really knowing where you're standing and, and this being common knowledge that other actors will also comply with this, I think can actually be an enabling force, I think, if done well. And an interesting part, I think, is also that you do see some kind of, I think, laudable efforts also from existing AI companies to try to become now part of this process. You know, there was an interesting, I think, paper that came out from DeepMind yesterday, really like really honing in on like verification and like safety work 
before, during, and after publishing of you know, of any AI, AI work that they're doing. Also, calling for more of a multi-stakeholder process. I think there was this call from I think Sam Altman and a few others calling for like a CERN for AI. For, so for this kind of like perhaps more positive, like collaborative approach for building positive AI technologies and. And so I think that you are seeing some movement, you know, gradually really in that space. There's also some really, I think, interesting papers coming out on like new cryptographic tools for like creating global regulatory markets for AI that are nevertheless privacy preserving. So different like actors could like verify models and, and that others are producing based on previously specified agreements and so forth. So I think you do see a lot of innovation, even just in the past few weeks um, that are just like relatively solution-based. And so I think it, it is a pretty... Yeah, I guess a pretty fast moving and exciting space. It is neither like black nor white. And, and I think there's a lot of kind of like interesting kind of like proposals just along the way. W- w- would you agree? Is there any particular thing that you're like excited about right now that is kind of coming coming along in the, uh, yeah, in the area of AI governance? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think that we have seen incredible progress in just the past few weeks even like in the amount this field has moved i would say in the past 2 months has been faster than in the many years preceding it i think we are seeing a lot of encouraging statements coming out out of out of the leading ai companies which is like great to hear and see but it's also important to put pen to paper and actually get specific on that and gain agreements on that because statements are great but it's actually operationalizing those to make concrete policies and concrete agreements that people sign on to. That is the litmus test of like where we want to go. And I, I think it also is important to have that be a truly multi-stakeholder process and sort of like pulling from something like the bio analogy. Like it is very important to have leading manufacturers and developers of pharmaceuticals involved in the regulatory discussions because they have a unique understanding of the requirements and the challenges and the opportunities in that space. But they alone are insufficient because there are like certain conflicts of interest that come to the table, right? If you are the developer of those technologies. And so that is where the multi-stakeholder perspective of like also having independent scientists and civil society groups and other groups within government doing independent analysis is really important and and key to getting the, the regulation right. We just, I think, Blanketly deferring to what industries would like to have as standards is I like, let's check and verify if that's actually the route that we want to go and make sure that all sort of policy options are on the table. If anyone's interested, FLI put out a policymaking document called Policymaking in the Pause, which is our th- thoughts about what we should be doing in terms of AI systems needing to be safe and effective, thinking about licensing regimes, thinking about auditing, thinking about verification, a a lot of these different tools, thinking about liability of these systems. So there are a lot of levers that we can can pull here in order to make sure we put in the appropriate guardrails that mitigate risks, but still enable technology to to develop and be applied and, and realize that potential. Yeah, it's been so interesting having these, having had these discussions for so many years now, you know, like you guys having done these really wonderful Puerto Rico conferences for so many years. And it's not really like people haven't thought very, I think, like very deeply about this topic for a long, long time. It just now like the gloves come off and it's really just prime time to implement a lot of stuff. 
And with that in mind, a lot of these proposals are now getting super pragmatic. And, you know, like you really do see, you know, relatively, I think, concrete proposals like your guys' is like very just pragmatic of what can we do really like in the very, very near term future, like what's, you know, A, beneficial, but also be realizable on a pragmatic level. And so it's been interesting to see this space moving from, you know, from deep thinking into like very rapid realization and execution. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's for sure been interesting. If you maybe, you know, extrapolate yourself outward for five years from now, you know, if you think we have made some progress, A, on perhaps like realizing some of the benefits of the synergies that you discussed, such as perhaps like AI for, for bios, or let's say maybe DeepMind doesn't just roll out like Alpha 4.2, but like Alpha 4.5, or like the specific X scenario in which you could apply that to many other cases. And I think actually Demis in a recent other podcast, he basically mentioned that that was an explicit goal of them to like really apply to a lot of other scientific use cases now. And so Alpha 4 was like their one kind of like token of like having that be like a proof of concept and, and, and now applying it to other areas as well in the sciences, which would be extremely exciting. And, but also comes with its own risks. Anyways, so let's imagine maybe that has been done. Like, you know, like we really have like more AI for scientific progress that could revolutionize like bio in a relatively positive direction. And while maybe also having some kind of like more personal, personalized AI to have more empathetic human to human interactions. Could could you describe a little bit of, you know, yeah, what the future looks like or like how, how did we get there while also having avoided some of the risks? Like, yeah, what are like a few kind of intermediate steps that, that could be along this way? Yeah. And I think this is where, you know, FLI's work on our pause letter that came out and the sort of policymaking in the pause has come to be really important for actually realizing that future in the sense that we feel that this is a pretty critical time and that there's very big decisions we need to make and like guardrails we need to put in place to make sure we get to that positive future with AI. And so see like the very near term is like a critical point where we need to get the guardrails and like safety engineering of this right to be able to unlock sort of the the full suite of benefits along the way. I also think, you know, with the AI, AI at the level that we have today, there's still so much we can do about it. And it's so unexplored. I think the ability to apply where large language models are today to scientific problems, to businesses, to research infrastructure, to, to everything is like still so in its nascent days. Like this technology is like a few months old and we're still figuring out how can we use it and leverage it to unlock different aspects of, for me as like a biologist, I think about it in that realm a lot. I'm like very excited to understand like how we can actually start to understand what is health and disease. How do we tease signal from noise from the medical literature and biology literature that we have today in a way that's actually meaningful and starts to put the pieces of the puzzle together to answer the question like, what is health? What is disease? Why do we age? These sort of fundamental questions. And then the second piece of that is how can we intervene in these systems to prevent some of those things? How do we maintain health? How do we prevent disease? How do we prevent aging? So th that I would say is where my my mind is is at these days. But I think the most important lever to pull right now is making sure that these technologies are continued to be developed safely and deployed in a way that is also safe. So we've heard a lot about like 
How do we prepare for the economic effects that these systems will have? How do we prepare for the potential threats to democracy and disinformation and epistemics that these systems will have? How do we think about the power concentration that these could potentially confer? And so I do think getting a lot of uh, tackling those questions and getting answers to them and developing sort of strategies to to mitigate some of those risks is what's really going to help us both get to that next phase which is which is a lot of of the upside yeah awesome we usually ask people you know towards the end of the session or is what their eucatastrophe is so uh, eucatastrophe is i'm sure you know yeah. the term Originally originated with Tolkien, but then got picked up by Toby Auden or Cotton Barrett in the existential whole paper that led us to do this entire podcast. And, you know, there could be a lot said about rephrasing the term itself to find something that is less laden with catastrophe. <laughs> but in general, you know, we just ask people to kind of envision a positive scenario. So would yours be able to be AI for bio-focused? You know, would that be like, if we get this right, then I have like, you know, good hope that we're on a good path for humanity. Yeah. You know, I, I do struggle a bit sometimes with the thoughts of like catastrophe and new catastrophe in the sense that like it is way easier to break things than it is to build things. And so like when we break something in a catastrophe that can happen fairly suddenly, like getting things to go right is usually like a lot of sustained hard slog and work and careful engineering over time. <laughs> like really good things like just don't happen as much or as easily as entropy taking over and breaking things. So I I, I do struggle with that a lot, but I would say that the AI for bio is a piece of it. I also think that there's what that also could unlock for us as a species in terms of living longer, healthier, better lives on this planet, but also extending our reach through the cosmos and becoming actually a multi-planetary species. I think that that is right now the limits to that. If you look at like NASA's risk assessments and where like the critical risks or the red risks, as they call them, and we think about going to someplace like Mars, they're, they're mainly biologically based challenges that we have. We're like our biology and mammalian biology and biology of life is, is not really meant to endure long distance space travel and microgravity and radiation and all of those things. So I, I do think that there's there's a piece of the bio that is like health and disease and a sort of moonshot of alleviating so much suffering that everyone experiences. But also there's sort of the, the going even further beyond the just elimination of disease. How do we live longer? And then how, how do we take humanity to sort of new frontiers? So that would be my the thing I get excited about. I love it. Yesterday I was at Symbio Better and there was so much space bio. Yes. Uh, well, <laughs> but also just for, yeah, for like synthetic biology in space. We're hosting a space workshop actually in San Francisco in a week and a half from now. And it has a lot of space longevity and so forth in there. So I think these fields are already merging. We're probably going to hear lots from that, I think, in the next few years. Yeah. As we're nearing, uh, really, I think, our time, I would just love to know for someone perhaps newly entering the space, what would you kind of like, what would be like a few kind of like words of advice that you would want to give them along the way? And also in particular for, you know, someone perhaps being interested in contributing to FNI in any way, shape or form, you know, what, what are a few points that you could point them to? Yeah, I think for someone new entering the space, 
whatever your background or training or perspective or where you come from, there's opportunity to make a difference in this because the needs are so great. And the more diversity we get of disciplines and backgrounds and lived experiences and opinions and global representation is like, it is what this field needs to actually make some of these most consequential sort of decisions of where do we go with technology, right? Be it upside or downside. So I would say not to have the idea that this is something meant for AI researchers or nuclear scientists or biologists, that this is something that everyone can contribute to and engage in. And there is there is a home and a place for, for all those different perspectives to, to move this field forward. I would say a second piece of it of like, oh, it's maybe perhaps more of a knowing if this is right or not right for you is the fact that this is such a fast moving field. And that can be super exciting. That can also be so overwhelming because things are evolving and changing at like time scales. Like now, as we said, like the past six weeks and we talked six weeks ago, our discussion on AI policy and governance and Overton window would have been completely different. So that I think like to me, that's exciting to some people that can be overwhelming. So that's an important thing to know that this like this does move very, very quickly. There are some aspects that I think are a bit more stable and you can also find a and cause area or work that is like a little bit more stable and enduring over time. But it is an exciting and, and fast moving field. And I think the other thing that I've been really encouraged by over the years and all of the different people I've met in this field is it's a lot of positive sum thinkers. And that is a very rare thing to find, I feel like, in society. Having worn hats in many different industries and fields is many people see the world in zero-sum dynamics. And that becomes like a very, very difficult landscape to navigate in because it it, it feels like everything is competitive and finite and that the mindset you have is... It's it's not conducive to being able to engage in these types of questions of these powerful transformative technologies, which the biggest thing that they do is unlock positive sum dynamics and really enable us to untether ourselves from that thinking that has dominated us for as a species for such a long time of a scarcity mindset and negative constrained worldview. And so that's been exciting too, is just being around people that see the world as one that could be full of abundance and have room for everyone to succeed and lift everyone up is like a great group of people to be around. Yeah, I agree. If anything, do it for the people. You meet amazing people, I think, along the way. And, and I think maybe it's because those people can already project themselves into what it will be like to live in a future where there are actually uh, there's less need for a negative sum or adversarial like dynamics just because there are more abundance. And, and so I think that they kind of like... Um, backcast from that and already live as if it was true or something but yeah i can i can just yeah i can just confirm it's i think it's a wonderful comedian thanks for you know having been such a wonderful collaborator already along the way it's been really 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 fun and i'm really excited to see what fli is coming up within the next few months there's always just really exciting stuff tumbling out of your organization <laughs> all the time so i would say yeah for people to just maybe sign up to you guys mailing list just to the podcast and so forth it's a really wonderful org uh, kind of like yeah just like a ton on your plate so thanks thanks for doing the work that you do thanks everyone for joining this was really really fun and this will be published very soon and we'll be in touch thanks Amelia. Have a wonderful rest of your day, everyone.